name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. And welcome, welcome, welcome everyone. And wow, do we have one amazing guest today on Talking Bat, Professor Paul Racy. Now, if you don't know who Professor Paul Racy is, I'm going to have to say, what are you doing? Get straight on to Google now and find out all about this amazing gentleman. Paul, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Yeah, are you looking forward to doing a Talking Bat interview or... (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you that when it's over. <laughs> Some people wake up in the morning of these interviews and go, wow, we're doing an interview. And other people wake up and go, why did I ever agree to do this? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I'm in the former category, Neil. Uh, I, I mean, I have been thinking about it for a while and made some notes and that sort of thing. So yeah. uh, I'm very happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Oh, well, I am totally honoured that you accepted the invitation and you're someone that I was very, you probably don't remember, but you're someone that I was very fortunate enough to come across in the earliest days of my bat work. Uh, up in Aberdeen, you led a workshop in conjunction with Aberdeenshire Bat Group or whatever it was called back then. And this must have been about 25 years ago. And I was on that workshop and it really did inspire me. Um, So thank you for that. That's very good to hear. Very good to hear. But today it's not about me, it's about you. So what I'd like to do first of all is uh, just a brief introduction for our audience. I can't believe there won't be anybody out there that hasn't come across you. But just in case, I think it's always good just to... Uh, start off by introducing our guests. So you were Professor of Zoology at the University of Aberdeen from 85 to 93, Regis Professor of Natural History. I want to talk about that a little bit more in a, in a, in a few seconds. And you're currently Visiting Professor at the Centre for Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter. Before we get into this, why Sorry, I'm back. That's okay. That's not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. Um, you'll probably edit that bit out, but who knows? Yes. <laughs> Maybe we'll leave it in because these, these that, things... That, that are... was my garage calling. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask you before, before, the, before the, phone, the phone rang, uh, what got you interested in bats in the first place? How did it all start? Well, my favourite time of day has always been dusk, uh, even as a schoolboy, and it still is now. And that's when one group of animals goes to bed. You've got the hirundines swirling around, getting their last feed of the day, and off they go. And a little while later, as it gets a bit darker, uh, you see these little creatures flitting around the, the trees, and uh, I wondered what they were, and I wanted to know more about them. 
Um, so it was curiosity driven. And then when I went to university, we were given a weekly essay and we were given a subject to write on. Um, and then one week and only one week, our supervisor said, for the next essay, you're going to choose it yourselves. And I want you to go and find the examination, past examination papers, choose yourselves an essay uh, for this week. So uh, I went to the examination papers and I found uh, an essay, write an essay on echolocation in bats. And how that came to be there was that Donald Griffin, who discovered echolocation in bats and wrote the book Listening in the Dark, must have done a sabbatical in Cambridge University years before I got there. But he, he must have given some lectures to the honours class. And if you do that, you, you are invited to put a question in the exam paper. So that question obviously came from Don Griffin. So uh, I went and got listening in the dark out of the library and wrote an essay on it. So that was the first sort of landmark, if you like. The next thing that happened in my university career was that Lord Cranbrook, who was president of the Mammal Society and a very keen amateur Batman, gave a talk to the University Natural History Society. And he ended up by saying, well, if any of you chaps uh, want to know more about bats and give me a ring and come down and spend the weekend with us. Uh, well, you weren't, not that I could afford it, but I didn't have a car. But a friend of mine had his father's car, which he kept outside the university precincts. And we got together and we phoned Cranbrook and we went down and we had this fantastic weekend in his short wheelbase Land Rover, driving around World War II airfields with his old Holgate's bat detector. I don't know whether you've ever seen one of these, but it's about the size of a shoebox. Okay, yes. It's a huge thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but that was the detector of the time. And uh, he showed us noctules and pipistrels and all that. It was absolutely fantastic. Wow. Um, so they were, they were, the, they were the, the two... Uh, sort of main events and then uh, I actually ploughed my exams uh, my final exams and I didn't get the uh, I didn't qualify for the PhD scholarship that I'd been offered with uh, Professor David Pye at King's College and in fact I got a job working on bees at Rothamsted Experimental Station in Hertfordshire and uh, during that time Andrew Watson, who ran the Mammal Society back group, lent me his Holgate. So I had his Holgate for all one summer, and I wandered around pointing that at, uh, at, <laughs> at the sky at dusk, not knowing very much about what I was uh, listening to, but that got me into it and got, you know, drove my curiosity even more. Wow. Um, and then uh, um, Rotham said, uh, assured me that there would be a chance of registering for a PhD, which is what I wanted to do, because uh, I wanted to, uh, to get into research. Uh, but it emerged after uh, a period at Rothamsted that that was going to take a very, very long time. Okay. And I saw a, a job advertised on bats at the Wellcome Institute uh, of Comparative Physiology in London Zoo. But I didn't actually apply for it because I thought I hadn't given Rothamsted a fair chance. Um, uh, but the person that was appointed for that job 
didn't turn up for it by good fortune for me and it was re-advertised and by that time I'm sort of rather getting disenchanted with Rutherford uh, so I applied for it and in fact I was the only candidate and the chair of the interviewing panel was Professor Sir Alan Parks who had actually lectured me in Cambridge not that he knew that uh, but he was a keen amateur beekeeper so we spent much of the interview talking about bees, much, <laughs> much to the consternation of the other people on the interviewing panel that wanted to know what I knew about bats. Anyway, I got the job, uh, and the job was to breed British bats in captivity with a view to researching their unique reproduction, and in particular, the mechanism of sperm storage. Okay. And that, that was the story of how I got into bats. Uh, the... Uh, uh, we had a, a very interesting time spending weekends out in the field. My, my boss at, uh, at London Zoo, he didn't much approve of field work. He thought, he thought I should be on the laboratory bench um, all days. So my wife and I confined our field work going out to English churches to uh, catch pipistrels uh, to the weekends. So she and, and she rubbed the brasses and I caught the bats. Uh, <laughs> but the, 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 one of the nice things that happened during my five years at, at London Zoo was we convened annual meetings of the Mammal Society Bat Group because uh, yeah. I, I got the education lecture together for free and we got the group of people and maybe um, always like a dozen speakers up to 100 attendees uh, and that worked very well. Uh, but then the money ran out in London and I got a postdoc in Liverpool um, uh, that lasted for a couple of years. And then that money ran out and I was getting very nervous because I had a, a family to support by that time. But I was fortunate enough and it was extremely fortunate to get one of the last lectureships that was advertised to meet the staffing requirements uh, of the post-war baby boom. The universities had this huge expansion after the war in both the physical estate. They, they built more buildings uh, because they had to accommodate a lot more students and they needed a lot more staff. Uh, and nature, nature published a graph some years later that showed this huge peak in recruitment to lectureships in the 10 years, 15 years after the war, uh, uh, 20 years after the war. Uh, and my appointment was right at the tail end of that, okay. when, the, when the graph was coming right down. So I was very fortunate to get that lectureship and I stayed there for 36 years. And that was Aberdeen, where you got that lectureship. That was Aberdeen, that was yeah. Aberdeen, yeah. 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 So you moved up to the northeast of Scotland. And yes. as, I th as I think you know, I'm Aberdeen born and bred. And I didn't know uh, that, Neil. Uh, congratulations. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, when I was at school, I always dreamed of going to the zoology department at Aberdeen University. And I know the building quite well. I've been in it many times, but I was I was never good enough uh, at school to get uh, to get in there. Um but uh, but yeah, you've got the the silver granite, or more often than not, the grey granite of uh, right. Aberdeen. And yes, it can yes. be yeah, it can be a pretty bleak place at times, but yeah, but lovely uh, when the granite shines in the sunlight. 
Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you were there for, you said, 36 years. 36 yeah. years. Yeah. And during that period, uh, 1985, you became a professor. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Regis Professor of Natural History. I think I'm right in saying there is only ever one of these at any one time. And you held that position for, goodness, how many years is that? Seven, 16 years, something like that? Yes, yes, you're right. There's only one Regis Professor of Natural History in the UK. Uh, But the term Regis Professor uh, was established, uh, the post of Regis Professor was actually established in 1497 by James IV of Scotland. And the first one was actually the Regis Professor of Medicine in the University of Aberdeen. Uh, at, at, at any one time in the UK, there are probably 20,000 professors of okay. one sort or another. Okay. But at this moment, I think there are only about 60 uh, Regis professors. Uh, okay. And it's still uh, so that they're rare. And it, it's uh, an honorific appointment because it's uh, approved by the Queen. Yeah. So uh, I have a, a parchment downside, downstairs signed by Her Majesty that, that says that um, I am her trusty and well-beloved, which means a lot to me, you know? Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Uh, and um, when I was appointed, there were a couple of dozen media professors in the UK, but successive governments have increased that number to about 65 to honour the Queen, uh, Silver Jubilee, Diamond Jubilee, things like that. Um, But she still approves all the Regis appointments, often through her Secretary of State. So the parchment I have is signed by her at the top and at the bottom it's co-signed by the Secretary of State for Scotland. Yeah, yeah. That is, you know, you, you must cast your mind back to those early days getting involved with bats, doing the early work to get through university, to, uh, you know, the work that you were talking about a few moments ago. And you could never have imagined, even in the fairest or the best of winds, that many years later, this would be where you got to. I mean, that must be... No, you're right. Particularly yeah. after I ploughed my finals in Cambridge. Wow. Yeah. 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 Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. Now, after you retired from Aberdeen in 2009, you you obviously decided you had enough of the, <laughs> the cold northeast of Scotland and... I think you headed as far south as you could possibly get to in the British Isles, almost. So, well, you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. The, the Lizard Peninsula in Cornwall. And we're about two miles from Lizard Point, the most southerly point in the UK. Okay. okay. Wow. We'll talk more about, we'll talk more about what you do today later on in the interview. If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To 
find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your place, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. Some other things that uh, have happened during your career, um, you, you know, your working life, which must have been quite special stepping stones uh, for you. Do you want to pick uh, from the list here of various uh, achievements that you've, you know, you've been honoured to, you know, have been given? Yep. Well, I, I think I think uh, the um, the one I probably value most is the Garrett S. Miller Award, okay. um, because it came as a complete. Um, uh, as a complete surprise um, during the um, 19, it was actually during the dinner of the 1995 International Back Conference in Boston. And uh, I mean, it was well advanced in the dinner and uh, you know, drink had been taken. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, all, all of a sudden <laughs> I heard Tom Coots yeah. say the word Wisbeach, Cambridgeshire. Okay. And I thought, what's he talking about? There can't be anybody else who's associated with Wisbeach, Cambridgeshire, which is where I was born, yeah. in the room. And Tom had been in cahoots with my secretary, with whom I had words later, uh, and extracted from her my CV. Okay. And it was Tom that was really responsible for... Um, getting the approval of his colleagues in the, the North American Symposium of Bat Research uh, to uh, nominate me for the Garrett S. Miller Award. Uh, and uh, it, it, I, think, I think I was the first, I was the first person from this side of the pond. Yeah. Um, so it had mainly been um, awarded to people, mainly North Americans, but also some people in the Americas, maybe further south in the Americas, had been given the award. But it was a huge honour and it remains so. And um, uh, I guess... So, um, so have you got any, I mean, have you got any idea what in particular you had done up until that stage to, to get recognised in this way? Or was it a combination of different things? Or I think was, it was a combination of different yeah. things in that, um, I mean... In that I had invited uh, uh, in the, in my early days when when I got to Aberdeen um, uh, and I was trying to get grants to do bat work and the people that gave grants to do bat work and who, who gave grants to do mammalogy work in the UK were of the view that bats were too difficult. Yeah, it's yeah. waste of money to give people. Uh, money to, to do work on bats because you couldn't, couldn't do it. It's just far too difficult. And so I thought, well, it's not too difficult because we, there are people and they come to the annual meeting of the Mammal Society Bat Group who are doing work on bats. So I've got to persuade them that it can be done. So I got together a group of North Americans, Tom Coons, Brock Fenton, Jack Bradbury, Merlin Tuttle. Um, wow who uh, on their own resources 
came to speak to one of the annual Mammal Society Autumn Symposia, which I organized. And they just talked about their research on North American bats. And the audience were completely gobsmacked. Well, you can do all that on bats, you know, and they were yes. doing some quite sophisticated stuff. Um, and uh, uh, in the audience, of course, were the senior people that gave money that sat on the committees of the Natural Environment Research Council, the grant committees that gave money for bats. And I then put a grant application in and got it. And that was the first grant awarded by the Natural Environment Research Council for bat, bat ecology in the UK. Yeah. And, and that was the start of it all because I then had a series of NERC grants and that really set me up. I mean, that first grant, I uh, employed Susan Swift as a research assistant and she also yes. registered for a PhD. Yes. Uh, uh -huh. And, and it, all, it all went from there. Yeah. And uh, I had a series, half a dozen maybe, NERC research grants and, and built from there. Uh, okay. Because, you know, success attracts success in that respect. You get money from the Natural Environment Research Council, someone else will give you money. Uh, and it's all money. I mean, you have, you have to pay people's salaries uh, and uh, you need this grant income. Uh, and and the, these North American guys came over and they really inspired uh, bat work in the UK. Uh, and I think that was, you know, they saw what I was trying to do and what I had succeeded in doing. And I think Tom, Tom really appreciated that, and he 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 also drove the Garrett Miller Award. Wow, amazing stuff! Amazing stuff. And uh, well, we're going to talk later about the Bat Conservation Trust. Um, but uh, I see from here you got a Lifetime Achievement Award in two thousand and nine. I was. I think this was given to you at the National Bat Conference that it year. Was, it, yeah, it was. was. It was. I, I was. Uh, yeah. I was fortunate enough to be sitting in the audience, uh, watching that and listening to your presentation. And uh, you know, it was it was very special for everybody in the audience. I'm sure. Good. And yeah, it must it was have special for me. Yeah. 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 It was. Uh, you know, one of those moments across many many conferences where I, where. For me, you know, I remember, you know, quite specifically what was going on at that moment in time and stuff. And BBC Wildlife, one of their 50 conservation heroes. Now, that's that's like a, that's almost like a totally different audience from is, the academic yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, that's a bit more mainstream. That's a little bit more... Uh, <laughs> well, it, yeah. it, it, I mean, that... that just like the Garrett S. Miller Award, that came as out of the blue. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. shock. Uh, and if I'm right in thinking, um, uh, top of the list was Prince Charles. Wow. That, okay. That, in that year, I, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was something very nice. And I think um, I don't know how it came about. Uh, I have one or two suspicions of one or two people who I think were responsible, but I'm not going to mention their names because yeah. I've never been sure about it. Um, the, the, the other um, 
surprise, and very nice surprise, but rather tinged with sadness, was honorary membership of the American Society of Mammalogists. Okay. Because that, that was presented to me uh, during um, uh, a meeting in Kenya to try and set up uh, a bat network uh, in, in, in Africa. And this was uh, a meeting convened by uh, Bat Conservation International and, and other groups. And uh, we were all we were all herded uh, after we had a session around the table. One afternoon, we were herded into um, a lecture theatre, and um, I, someone stood up and said, "You know, we we have a duty to to perform, pleasant duty to perform, to present Paul Racy with honorary membership of the American Society of Mammalogists." And it, it was again clear from the context that that's something that had been inspired by Tom Coots. Okay, okay. Uh, and the sad bit about it was by that time, Tom had had his dreadful accident yes. and was, was being cared for in, in a care home. Um, and, you know, he, you know, you couldn't really communicate with him. Uh, as as I had done in the past, so that was a very poignant occasion, really, and I found it very difficult to speak uh, in response to that. Yes. Yeah. I'll never, okay. never forget that moment. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Tom Kuntz uh, sure, sure. later on, um, yeah. but uh, wow, wow. Let's say uh, let's take things uh, forward a little bit and let's go back to your academic work. And I, I, I've been Googling all week, okay, trying to, <laughs> trying to find out stuff about you that I didn't know. And um, there, is, there were just so many papers and stuff that you come across from places like ResearchGate and stuff like that. Uh, I, I just wasn't able to kind of fathom the amount of uh, academic papers and publications and books that you've uh, assisted with, co-authored, lead authored, whatever. But uh, I believe over 600 academic papers published, which is astonishing. Um, yeah, I astonish um, myself, but it, 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 it's quite <laughs> te it's, they're quite tedious to count. So. Let's, yeah. let's say that, that that's an estimate. That's an um, estimate. It, it, no, but, and, and, uh, it's not more than 600, it's about 600. It's about 600. Uh, uh, and, uh, um, and as you say, I mean, uh, uh, I, I guess at this point in time, the majority of them are co-authored because yeah. uh, I have very few lead authorships since I've retired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and uh, as you say, co-edited a few uh, publications. People often ask me, why haven't you written a book? Okay. There's no monograph by Paul Racy. Yeah. And lots of other people have written monographs. And uh, I, I, it was a conscious decision really. And I've often been asked to write books because nothing, publishers have to keep their lists full. And uh, during my life, publishers have often um, hassled me to, uh, 
give them a title and produce a book for them. And I've, I've always taken the view that papers, I think, contribute more because more people read them. Okay. People, people buy books. Um, they may or may not read them, but they like to have them on their shelves. They like to collect new naturalists, for example. Yes. So they've got yeah. the complete set. Uh, but the extent to which they're read, I'm not sure. But papers are different. And although I have no illusions about the fact that the majority of readers don't go beyond the abstract, yeah. at, at least that's something. And, and they read about that discovery. And uh, so that, that's why uh, I've stuck to writing papers and I don't regret it really. And what, what would you, I mean, obviously, there's no way you can remember every one of these individual papers or studies and stuff, but what, what would you summarise as being the, the key things that you were involved with over that period of time? Um, is there anything in particular or subjects generally uh, that strike you now as being yeah that was an important one that was a key moment that was a valuable bit of research obviously it was all valuable but how would you summarize it well that's a very uh, difficult question to answer neil but um uh, and what i think uh, is valuable may not be what everybody else thinks is valuable but uh, I, I always go back to the fact that I often talk about today when I'm talking about you know, the unique characteristics of bats. Uh, bats are the only mammals that can stop, start, uh, st sorry, start, stop, slow down and speed up gestation. Okay, yeah. So no other mammal can do that. I mean, the, the gestation period of mammals is fixed. It's fixed by the fetal genotype and it's very difficult to do anything to change that. So, you know, the entire population of Amsterdam was starved during the Second World War and women gave birth nine months after their pregnancy began. Okay. Uh, it did not change. Um, and, you know, there have been various experimental studies uh, on rats and things like that, subjected to extremes of temperature uh, and so on and so forth. And the gestation period has remained constant. But bats are so plastic. So, uh, you know, if they get a period of bad weather in spring, and by that I mean sleet and snow in May and June in Scotland, which happened, yeah. and you're studying uh, the duration of pregnancy, they had a fortnight of bad weather and they gave birth a fortnight after they should have done. So they're completely plastic in this respect. And that's a really unique feature of bats. Um, uh, and I think it's quite incredible. Uh, I don't know how many other people agree with me though. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, we, we, my job, as I mentioned, was to discover how bats store sperm uh, for the duration of winter. And we've got some hints about that. I mean, we think the, the, the sperm is fed 
by the uterus. Um, uh, but um, I mean, that story still has to be wound up. I mean, we're not completely clear about how, um, how bats do that, but it, it, it's unique uh, to store sperm with retained fertility for six to seven months in the female reproductive tract. And, and this process, is, the, is this true across all bat species or? No, uh, does, no. Does... Uh, sperm storage is mainly uh, a, a feature of uh, temperate zone bats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So bats, bats that hibernate, in other words. Bats that experience a period of food shortage during the winter. That's in the north and south temperate zones. It, it, it is found to a much more limited extent for a smaller period, a shorter period of time in some tropical species, but very few. Because I would imagine they find themselves in a situation where they haven't needed to do this. So uh, yeah, of where sure. they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, you say you say you haven't authored anything, but this this wonderful book, uh, Island Bats, uh, which you did along with uh, Theodore Fleming. Um, I mean, obviously you are very heavily involved with this, I would imagine, and uh, and it's quite a unique book from the point of view that it it does focus, as it says in the title, on uh, bat communities in Ireland environments yeah uh, yeah and, and yeah. i guess i guess ted involved me in it because of my involvement with madagascar yeah. uh, and that was that's the chapter we had in it on madagascar let's move on and see what we've got next so madagascar that's uh, uh, no. can we go back to of course we can the third question uh, under yeah. academic work how would you summarize your key lifetime achievements yes please well yeah. I, I think uh, I mean, we talked about the papers, uh, and I'm proud of that achievement. But I, I think I'm even prouder of having trained uh, over 60 PhD students. And over half of those worked on bats, um, both in the UK and overseas. And so, and they're able, a lot of them are able to continue their bat work. Um, and that gives me, and I'm still in touch with many of them, and that, that gives me a great deal of pride and pleasure. Yeah, yeah. And you've already mentioned Sue Swift and uh, coincidentally, yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, obviously I'm in Scotland, I, I know Sue well, and she very kindly did one of these interviews for us last year. And, and uh, I remember her talking about her days at Aberdeen University, um, you know, with the, that study that you were talking about, um, which was on uh, long-eared bats from memory. And of course, she then produced her book on long-eared bats. That's right. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. But, but as you say, after, after Sue, you know, another 50 plus, uh, another 50 yeah, plus yeah, people. Yeah. Uh, wow, wow. On a wide range of subjects and often in... Uh, far away places. So, yeah. um, uh, PhD students in Madagascar and uh, um, Thailand and Mexico, uh, Nepal. Um, uh, so that you know, when I went out to visit them. I, I, if I had PhD students over uh, abroad, I always visited them in the field 
And that was very important to do because, you know, although they corresponded with you a lot with the ease of email and that sort of thing, you, you really had to go and see things at first hand to get yes. to grips with it. And, and often such visits were useful in sort of nudging the direction of research in one way or the other. Yes, yeah. And technology isn't what it was today, but I would imagine even with the kind of technology that we're using today, you know, the online Zoom type session, that's not the same as physically landing in a country and actually yeah, seeing yeah, what the yeah, researchers sure, having to sure, contend with. Sure. Yeah, yeah. My no. so one of my first PhD students was in the Seychelles, actually working on Tenrex, and that okay. was six weeks turnaround time for a letter. Wow. Yeah. So that was yeah. how we communicated then. Yeah. So, yeah, it just seems astonishing. It does seem astonishing. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to be old enough to remember life before computers and uh, even before photocopiers and faxes, but it was a very, very different uh, world. world in the 1960s and the 1970s compared to what happens today. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, is there anything else you want to say about key lifetime achievements? So is, is that, is that the... Uh, that, that's it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that brings us nicely on, uh, because we've already mentioned a few times now, overseas work. Let, let's talk a bit about, about that. Um, tell me, tell me about this overseas work that you've been involved with over many years. Yeah. Well, I mean, my main overseas involvement has been in Madagascar, uh, and that started uh, with a PhD student who um, was, uh, was it? he was an undergraduate at Royal Holloway College, and he'd taken expeditions to, uh, undergraduate expeditions to Madagascar, and he decided he wanted to work on Tenrex. Uh, and uh, um, someone put him on to me, and um, he, he was a very good student, uh, got good marks, and got a PhD scholarship, which he took to Madagascar. And I went out to see him, um, and he was successful, and I was uh, intrigued by the country and by the uh, lack of knowledge about its bats. And uh, I uh, applied for a Darwin Initiative grant. I actually applied three times before I got one. But once I got one, I then got a series of them because you, you know how the system works. And uh, we uh, set up um, an NGO in Madagascar, the, the first uh, First head of that was Richard Jenkins, um, who set up Madagascar Rakaj, which means Madagascar Conserved. And um, we started off by taking on uh, students to do their projects. Each undergraduate student had to do a project to get their degree. So we took on and supervised a few of those, uh, and the organization grew. Um, and I ended up with a sort of 25-year uh, involvement in Madagascar wow. with several um, 
I mean, a, a couple of British PhD students, uh, one working on fossas, a carnivore that climbs trees and eats lemurs, okay, uh, right. and one working on fruit bats. And then finally, uh, and that's what's shown here in the, the, the uh, bottom left picture, yeah. uh, that's a team working on uh, the sucker-footed bat in southeast Madagascar. Okay. Uh, and that, that carried on into my retirement when I managed to get a, a Leverhulme Emeritus Fellowship, uh, which is very special uh, award that allows you to uh, continue work uh, after your retirement that you started before you retired. Okay. But, yeah. but with, with, by employing research assistants. Okay. So before I retired, we started a project in Southeast Madagascar on the Sukkapuni bat, and we'd only caught um, males okay. in this study area. We caught lots of them. And they're quite rare overall in Madagascar, they're sort of concentrated in the southeast there. We've only caught males and we've never caught a female. So the ongoing question in my mind is where are the females? So I could say this is work that I started before I retired, that I felt the need to continue after I retired uh, with uh, the appointment of research assistants. And the lady there shown there in the middle uh, was the research assistant, Mehefa Valisata, and she worked on the sucker-footed bats for um, seven years, all told, and eventually got a PhD. And that, that's our team who were based down there. The big guy on her right is the driver, Lever, and then okay. these, two, these two guys with baseball hats in the back. Yeah. They were most extraordinary. They were called guides. Okay. And they were, in fact, tree climbers. Okay. To, to see them go straight up a Ravanala tree, that's it, a traveler's tree in which yeah. the sucker-footed bats roosted, was quite incredible. Well, and probably, they probably weren't using ropes or harnesses. No, or no nothing no. like that at all. <laughs> nothing like that, no. Um, and uh, they, they uh, would go up and um, um, they would... Uh, catch bats and this this method was devised by Maefa. We've got a, a huge pillowcase or bolster on a wire frame so it was extended and it was passed up to these guys who were up the tree and they would put it right up above the unfurled leaf or semi-unfurled leaf, draw it down over the leaf then it had a drawstring at the bottom you would tighten it and uh, then they would get their machete out and cut the base okay. and lower it down and it could have up to 50 bats in it Goodness. which you, wow. could then, you could then ring and put radio transmitters on and that sort of thing yeah um uh, the other lady there's the cook uh, okay very, very important to have a, cook. a very important person uh, <laughs> and, 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 and the, the little uh, one there is her child okay. um so that was the team, and that was the team for several years yeah. um, in, uh, in southeast Madagascar. There's wow. another, another group of Malagasy there who uh, are out uh, being taught bat detector stuff uh, uh, by uh, the guy in the middle there, um, okay. Amir Kafoki, who okay. 
published a paper on the echolocation cause of Madagascar bats. Um, so they were they were part of an ongoing project that's still going on, although they do less work on bats now. They've had to diversify in order to keep the show on the road. Um, but uh, I mean uh, uh, that that uh, um, research project is, I guess, one of uh, with which I have the fondest memories. Okay. Um, it was, you know, it was uh, a very safe country. Yes. Uh, when I was there, it was politically stable, uh, very safe, um, and uh, we had uh, a great time. Yeah. The, 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 the bottom one on uh, uh, I, I put in because it's one of the few photographs I have of a, a very important person in my career, and that was Tony Hudson. Okay. And we'll come on to him when we talk about the Bank Conservation Trust. And that photograph is taken in Mauritius where Tony okay. and I went on a visit um, because the Mauritians were complaining, uh, Mauritian uh, fruit farmers, litchi farmers, were complaining about the depredations of bats eating their litchi crops and the government ordered a cull. And uh, we were out there talking to uh, government and agricultural officials um, uh, to try and um, uh, I think the, the, the motive for our visit was the fact that the Mauritian government were absolutely incensed that IUCN had um, changed the status of the fruit bat to um, critically endangered without their permission. As, All if, right. uh, as if IUCN needed to ask their permission. Okay, um, right. you know, um, to uh, determine the red book status of a species. But they were highly incensed about that and they wanted it downgraded again. So Tony and I went out to look at the facts, look at all the count data, uh, see how they'd done it, um, and uh, uh, produced a report. Um, since that time, I mean, the government have continued their program of culling bats and the bat has uh, been uh, the bat status has worsened to critically endangered so that, that, that's one of the few photographs i have tony is quite uh, retiring in these respects so he's not he's not there shoving himself in front of the camera you know what i mean yes uh -huh. yes absolutely absolutely okay okay so, so there, there, there are some examples of yeah. uh, um, overseas work, um, and, uh, but yeah. uh, you know it's also taken, as we'll hear later, to uh, many other countries. Yeah, yeah. And talking about Madagascar, um, wow! I mean, how must have you felt when you learned that you were actually going to have a species of bat? Uh, named after you because that doesn't happen very often these days does it um no no i i guess i guess not and uh, i was uh, delighted i'm very grateful to uh, the people who uh, who were behind it particularly paul bates at the harrison institute and uh, steve goodman um who is the leading mammalogist in in madagascar also uh, with the Field Museum in Chicago. And uh, 
this lady here, Franja, uh, Franza, her name is. Okay. Quite difficult. Um, no, uh, who was a good colleague uh, in Madagascar. Uh, okay. I was absolutely delighted. And uh, tickled pink, I think. Yeah. It was also, it also provided um, a source of great amusement among my family yeah. um, and colleagues when it was described as a little old bat with a big old penis. Yeah, and, 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 here's, and here's a T-shirt that uh, pretty much says something along those lines. Um, yes. Yeah, and I, I'd heard the story. I'd heard the story about you getting this T-shirt. And uh, did you want to just, because I think I think somebody presented you with this T-shirt during, was that a conference or a workshop or something? And, well, I, I'm, yeah. I'm trying hard to remember. Okay. And uh, I'm... I think my eldest son was responsible for that T-shirt. Okay, okay, right. And I think all members of the family were presented with it one Christmas. Okay. I'm not, <laughs> but I'm not sure about that, Neil. Okay, but, okay. You know, memory yeah. isn't always what it was. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, an, an amazing picture. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just, as you say, tickled pink. Have you, right, so have you ever actually seen one of your bats in the oh, flesh. You bet. No, uh, that's how it came about. Uh, right. Okay. I caught it. I, I caught it. And so I, after, uh, as it was getting dark one evening, I went off with, I think I was on a workshop in Kirindi, uh, in a very hot part of uh, Western Madagascar. Okay. I was involved in a workshop there and uh, went off with another, uh, with one of the students on the workshop to miss net bats at a pond. Okay. There was, a, there was a, a, a small pond, small area of standing water. Uh, and even so, it was a possible place to catch bats coming in to drink. Um, and uh, so we got a nest up and we sat down and waited. Uh, and as we were waiting, we got a fantastic view of a fossa okay. just yeah. walked past us, uh, obviously come to drink. And then we got a bat in the neck, um, which we couldn't identify, took it back. And uh, um, it was eventually described as Pipistella's racii by Bates and Goodman. And... Um, Actually, I don't think it was that specimen that became the type specimen. Because by the time it had traveled around the world and one thing or another, it wasn't in as good a condition as another one they'd found. You see that how many four dots on this map. So they're not they're not thick on the ground. Yeah. I, I don't think the one we caught in Kirindi was the type specimen, it was another one that okay. was in better condition. Um but no, no, I, I caught it, although I didn't know what I was catching at the time. And that's why we took it back yeah. to the headquarters, because we couldn't identify it. And that was the, that was the standard procedure. You know, if you can identify it from what you have with you, let it go. If you yes. don't, you take it back and let someone else have a go at it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing story. Amazing story. Let's, let's talk about some colleagues 
that you've had over your lifetime and there's probably a few that you want to mention yeah there are had, there yeah. are a few and yeah. i mean tom coots yeah. uh, was uh, very encouraging um he he was the person that invited me to contribute a chapter to his book on batacology the first book of its kind and that did a lot at that particular time to sort of you know establish my reputation in that field um and subsequently um we he, he's invited me to you know contribute to the two editions of uh, Behavioral and Ecological Methods for the Study of Bats. And together we co-edited uh, Bat Biology and Conservation. Um, and uh, that, that got the award from um, North American publishers for the best edited book of the year. Right, I mean, okay. you know, that's a, a niche award, you might say. Yes. Um, but bat biology and conservation still sells. Um, and, and it was actually uh, the papers that were presented at a symposium of that name held during the, the, the North American, uh, the, the uh, International Bat Research Conference that Tom convened in Boston. So in, in ge the general pattern of those, North American, uh, of those international bat conferences we did it in Aberdeen in 1985, is that uh, you have three mornings of special symposia with invited speakers. And uh, if, if it looks like being the right thing to do, you put those together and, and as a book and get a publisher. So we did that in Aberdeen. It was recent advances in the study of bats. Um, Tom did it. Uh, and it's been done, done, done subsequently. Tom and I did it from Boston, and it's been done at a subsequent meeting. It doesn't always work because, you know, uh, publishers are sometimes more reticent these days of taking on that sort of symposium uh, to publish. But uh, Tom, Tom uh, was always very encouraging, uh, and a lot of, you know, exchanges with him. Um, and we, uh, we, worked together in the field in Darnham Valley uh, in uh, Sabah and I remember standing in a wetland with him in Israel and I can't remember, the, I've been trying hard to remember the details of that but a very clear recollection of misnetting little bats with Tom up to our hoxes in water in Israel. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, but so uh, we, we, we had a lot to do with each other in the days before his dreadful accident yes which yeah. was a huge tra tragedy that affected us all very badly yes yeah. uh, and, and you know there were as i mentioned there were a series of north american colleagues alongside uh, tom was brock fenton uh, with whom i still have uh, regular uh, exchanges and i brock uh, I arranged for me to, to do a fieldwork project at Renfrew Mine, which I did with Mark Avery, who was one of my PhD students at the time. And we camped outside Renfrew Mine um, and we were 
listening to the copulation calls of bats inside the mine. Uh, that was a, that was a, a interesting field project. Um, and uh, um, so, you know, I've had very good North American colleagues um, who meant a lot to me uh, over the years. Um, Peter Lena is somebody completely different. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he has always been a good attender at uh, bat meetings and uh, is, has really been responsible for maintaining the European Symposia on Bat Research. So he, he has been a leading light behind them. He's taken it on himself to find the next venue to persuade people in the country that it would be good for them, for them and for the country to organize the next one in the series. Yeah. Uh, and he continues to do that in retirement. And he, I think he's a bit older than me. But uh, the adventures I've had with Peter uh, involve uh, traveling across Europe uh, through the Iron Curtain uh, and into Iron Curtain countries. And uh, I remember one journey I was discussing recently with Tony Hudson. Uh, Hudson and I are sitting in the back of a vehicle. To get to the border, Lena says, passports, please. And this was going into Poland okay. to visit the bat reserve at Nita Perek. And Peter, who speaks some Polish, goes into the office, uh, deals with the passports, comes out, and off, off we go. Um, and when the Iron Curtain was up, Peter... Um, collected materials and, and he had fundraisers to do this. He sold t-shirts at bat meetings and that sort of thing to raise funds, to buy materials, books and bat detectors, um, which he would get into Iron Curtain countries. And he had a network of couriers. <laughs> I don't know any more details than that, but he had a network of couriers and he would get this stuff in bat rings, bat nets uh, uh, in the days before Ecotone in Poland started producing bat nets. This is going way back. And uh, um, so we had, uh, we had some, I mean, uh, I really admired what he did. He just did it behind the scenes, raised the money, got the materials together, identified the couriers and got this stuff in behind the Iron Curtain. And it really did encourage people so that when the Iron Curtain came down, there was a certain momentum um, yeah, of some people who'd already taken up bat work and are already running around with bat detectors and mist nets doing stuff. Yes. And I think that was really, that was really fantastic. Um, the year I retired, I um, still had a research project. Um, uh, sorry, not the year I retired. The year I ceased being head of department. So I did a six year stint as head of department. Okay. And after that, you're sort of suffering from demob fever, which is a very demanding job. And I, I had a big grant uh, characterizing uh, molecular characterization of pipistrels across Europe. So I, my part of it was collecting samples, wing punches of pipistrels from all the islands of the west coast of Scotland, the Orkneys, uh, and right across Europe as far as I could get. So. The year I was being head of department, 
um, uh, I invited Peter and Jens Schradell, who was doing a postdoc in my lab at the time, to join me on the collecting trip to get wing punches from Pipperstiles in Europe as far as we could get. So I organized the hiring of a car in Amsterdam airport. Jens, who was with me, and I traveled to Schiphol and where we met Peter Lina. And we went to the hire car desk and um, signed the papers. And I said to the lady behind the counter, what happens if this car breaks down uh, in Eastern Europe? And she said, oh, you can't take this car to Eastern Europe. <laughs> so, so I, said, I said, okay, I understand, and took the keys and off we went. And we got that car, uh, uh, Peter, through Peter, we'd arranged to stay overnight in the accommodation provided by the academies of sciences of all the countries we visited. Okay. So all those countries, they have their own academies of sciences. You have the Polish Academy of Sciences, the Czech Academy of Sciences, and they have accommodation. And okay. Peter arranged it. We had a bed for the night. And they also had like a compound. So we got our car into these secure compounds each night. Um, and that was very important. As Peter knew from Peter knew from personal experience, he'd driven to Poland with his wife, uh, parked his car. This was on holiday, parked his car. And it had been nicked during the night. Okay, right, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the way he'd parked it, deliberately, he'd parked it tight in with other cars. Okay. And he thinks they'd just come with a grab, you know, lowered a grab. Um, so you would hook the wheels up only, don't damage it, you know, and then taking the car off. And, and because he, I mean, Peter, being the guy he is, he doesn't take that lying down. And speaking some Polish, he, he, got on Polish radio, local radio stations, and told them what awful thing had happened to him. And somehow he got his car back. Okay. <laughs> quite, quite amazing. So um, that's, that's Peter Lina. Um, and he, he's been a huge positive force in encouraging, encouraging younger bat workers throughout Europe. Um, and I'm very glad to have spent time with him. I'm missing. I, I keep I keep uh, hassling him to write his memoirs. Yeah, and he just, he just mutters he's got notes written down somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but, but he must he must he must have some amazing stories. Oh, absolutely, uh, you know. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We we uh, during one of these collecting trips, um, he and Jens and I had gone into. Um, so, huge medieval building with, with a, a domed roof and the domed roof uh, had been made of brickwork so um, uh, and so bats were in the mortar crevices um, and so we spent hours trying to persuade some bats to come out and I, I don't think we were particularly successful but it was ours and when we came out we'd gone in in the early afternoon shortly after lunch when we came out there was thick snow outside yeah. really thick snow in this was in uh poland 
Okay. And uh, I thought, oh, jeepers, this is going to be tricky. And Jens, who we lost recently, just took charge, been used to driving in snow all his life in Sweden, just took the wheel of the car and sorted it all out. And we, we got back to where we were meant to be safely. So that was the sort of adventures with Peter, Lena and Jens Rodell. Amazing stuff, amazing stuff. Um, going on to next, yeah. Let's talk about some of the the organisations and stuff that you've been involved with. Bat Conservation Trust didn't exist when you started off uh, bat-related activities, I'm quite sure. And I think I'm right in saying you're one of the key people, one of the co-founders of the BCT um, do you want to talk a little bit about the backdrop to that and how that came how that came to be? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I've always been interested in conservation um, ever since my undergraduate days because uh, a seminal book, The Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, was published in 1962. And that's the year I went to university. Uh, and that was a sort of that was a pivotal moment. People started to take an interest in the environment. Rachel Carson's book was about the dangerous effects of pesticides worldwide. And, and people took that up. And there was a huge surge of interest in environmentalism and that sort of thing. But, um, and although I'd always been interested in conservation, it wasn't really an approved academic pursuit when I first joined a university on, on the staff because it was seen as soft science. Um, uh, and it wasn't until, you know, I became more senior and could choose my own path without impediment that I really spent more and more time on conservation. Um, I mean, when, when I got to that, the local back groups um, were springing up uh, all over the UK, and they sort of coalesced into back groups of Britain, which needed financial support. Um, uh, but when that financial support looked like it was running out, John Burton, who'd been Executive Secretary of the Fauna and Flora Preservation Society, convened a meeting in London to encourage those of us who were involved with back groups of Britain um, and with bats generally, encouraged us to, to go in alone uh, and become independent of these different strands of external financial support that came and went, uh, and to set up our own NGO, uh, the Bat Conservation Trust. Um, so that was agreed uh, at, at a meeting in the Natural History Museum or the Science Museum in London. And so someone agreed to go away and write the constitution, which they did based on the Mammal Society constitution. Okay. Um, and um, um, things began to gather momentum. Um, John Burton persuaded Tony Hudson to leave a secure pensionable job at the Natural History Museum to, to become the first Bat Conservation Officer of, okay. of the Bat Conservation Trust. And uh, uh, Claire Franklin 
was recruited as the development officer. Uh, the money came initially from uh, the World Wildlife Fund in a sort of front-loaded grant that tapered off towards the end of the three years. And that enabled us to pay these staff and to hire a, a tiny office in Covent Garden. And uh, so it moved forward. We got another grant and the first, the first project of the Bat Conservation Trust was the Bats in Churches project. Okay, yeah. You know, and that sort of come full circle in a way. So the Bats in Churches project was run by someone called Jilly Sargent. Um, yeah, yeah. Who had done her master's on bats, I think, in Bourne uh, University, I forget which. Um, and uh, so it, it, it moved forward. Um, and um, I, John Burton was formerly the first chair in that he chaired the first meeting, uh, which was held at, at one of, I think it was the not, one of the Nottingham back conferences. There were a series of back conferences in Nottingham. And John chaired that meeting and then said that he wanted to, I guess, you know, there had to be an ongoing structure. And uh, I was nominated to take his place as chair. Uh, and the constitution said you could do it for three years plus three years and then stop for a year, okay. which was which is a good move. So it stopped people getting fossilized in a in yeah. a job like that. Uh, and and I guess uh, I was able to do it um, because I was then a professor and. I was free to do with my time what I chose. Okay. Uh, and that was a key thing, really. When I came back from one of the quarterly meetings uh, of um, back groups, uh, which the Back Conservation Trust organized, no one would say, where, have you, where were you yesterday? You know? Yeah. yeah. So, and that, that was very important. And, and I'm grateful to Aberdeen University for that freedom, uh, because that, that's what facilitated all this, that I was able to give it the time. And, and of course, I had a secretary, and that took some of the burden off. Um, and uh, I mean, it, 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 uh, uh, it all grew from there, and we outgrew those premises, and, and we were offered um, Premises in the um, former convent in Battersea. Battersea, um, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And then I think they were outgrown too and uh, moved to, well, moved to Vauxhall, um, uh, Vauxhall Bridge Road. And I remember when I, after some time, after they'd been there for some time, uh, I thought uh, it's about time I visited uh, the Back Conservation Trust, although I, I was no longer uh, formally associated with it. I wasn't chairman anymore. I thought I should go and see it to live uh, in support. And it turned out to be immediately next to the three-story block of flats that I lived in when I was a PhD student or uh, assistant in London Zoo. Wow. Yeah. Extraordinary coincidence. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been fantastic to see the Bat Conservation Trust survive yeah. through recessions and, you know, financial difficulties. Um, and, it, you know, that's due to the membership and the staff. And I think that's been absolutely fantastic because, you know, a number of other similar conservation organisations have not survived in that way. Back in those first days, um, again, it would have been it would have been unrealistic, I would imagine, to anticipate that decades later, uh, BCT would have the number of members that it has today. Yeah, and, sure. You sure. Know, it was, sure. yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and there's, there's some people or somebody who helped us on the way, and to this day, we don't know who they are. But in the very early days, we had a donation of £20,000. Yeah. A, a cheque arrived for £20,000 into our bank account. And we have no idea to this day who it came from. And back then, that would have been a lot of oh, money. Huge, huge, huge. Yeah, yeah. Huge, yeah, it was a lot of money. Um, so we're very grateful to whoever that was. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were some, you know, there were some... Uh, difficulties that had to be overcome because not everybody agreed with setting up another, you know, MAMA NGO. And I, I documented all that in the account I wrote that's available. Um, I mean, it was summarized in the Bat News earlier this year, uh, but members of the Bat Conservation Trust can get it through their uh, membership portal. Uh, in, in the BCT website, the history of bat research and conservation in the UK, which goes into details of you know some of the difficult difficulties we encountered from people who did not want us to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but since since they're since they're no longer with us, I won't go into details. Yeah, a little bit more uh, over, overseas now and a little bit more international. Let, let's talk next about the IUCN uh, specialist back group. Uh, this is something yes. I yes. don't think well, you're involved with it anymore. I think you're retired. Well, no, I'm, I'm still no. a member of the you are still a member, still okay. a member of, of the, um, the back group, but um, um, uh, that specialist group. But that was another sort of thing out of the blue. Uh, I was down in London for a bat meeting and I stayed, I used to stay in the cheapest accommodation I could, which was a hall of residence for medical students uh, in Charlotte Street. And one evening, John Burton and Tony Hudson appeared there and um, said, we went and had a meal and he, they took me out and they said, we want you to be chairman of the IUCN Bat Specialist Group, and I, which Bob Stebbings was chairing. Um, and I 
Um, you know, I said, yeah, okay, I mean, I'm interested, but uh, what about Bob? And they said, oh, you leave Bob to us. And that was it. And I became chairman. Um, and uh, I had to go and see the chairman of um, IUCN, Gren Lucas, who I think was in charge of um, Kew Gardens, National Botanic Garden in Kew. So I went to see him, very nice, a buncular man. And uh, he said, right, your first job is to produce a conservation action plan for microcharopter bats. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, sir. So off I went and with the uh, help of Tony Hudson and Simon Mickelborough, we produced the first bad action plan. Uh, I think Gwen Lucas has said, I think he used the words quick and dirty. Yeah. Um, uh, well, quick, seven years, uh, it took. Uh, and again, again, it, it was before the days when, you know, electronic media was up and running worldwide, you know. A lot of it was done with snail mail. Um, and uh, uh, I don't think it's dirty. I think it stood the test of time. Um, no, uh, sorry, that was the... Uh, I got, I got it wrong, Neil. The first, okay. one, the first one was the Old World Fruit Bat Action Plan. Okay. That okay. was the first one. That was meant to be quick, quick and dirty um, uh, after seven years. And then, um, uh, I mean, it's still, it's online. It's still quoted today. It's still used today. I think the nice thing about it is, for me, is that, you know, that there are people out there that say, this is what got them into at work. Okay. Yeah. In particular, Tammy Mildenstein has always told me that, that reading that was what persuaded her to go out to um, Asia and work on um, Teropus Marianus for her PhD and all that sort of stuff, which is very rewarding. Um, and then when we published it, we were told, right, well, what we want you to do now it's the same sort of thing for um, microbats. Um, and so get on with that. So we did. And so there are now two action plans, one for fruit bats and one for microbats. The, the fruit bat one is really has passed its sell-by date and it needs um, bringing up to date and that is happening one way or the other. Um, but my involvement with... Um, the bat specialist group was, I think, lasted 20 years. And I, I, I felt, so it, it, it wasn't like the Bat Conservation Trust, where the chairman does three years, can be re-elected for three years, but then must stand down for a year. Uh, the way IUCN works, you just go on forever. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was a bad thing uh, for me particularly. And I knew it, and I, I wanted to give it up. But, as I said, the Old World Fruit Bad Action Plan, the first, had needed redoing because there'd been a lot of research in the interim. And I was trying to see that through. 
and I could see it wasn't going as fast as I wanted. Okay. And so I thought, well, you know, you can drag on this forever. And so I, I resigned. Okay. And, okay. and Tigger Kingston took my place, entirely different, and, and it was really reinvigorated it. New blood was exactly what was needed. Okay. And she's shown that. And I think it's going from strength to strength. So, uh, but uh, I, I mean, the two, uh, you know, you, you talked about the sort of achie achievements earlier. And although I mentioned the, the papers uh, and, and you mentioned the sort of co-authored books, I think those two are probably the, the most important of that, that sort of output, uh, the action plans, because of they're so widely read. And, and in those, initially, in those days, it won't happen anymore. IUCN produced a large number of hard copies that were then posted off around the world. Um, and uh, well, it's all done electronically these days, of course. Um, I think you know, they, a lot of people have them on their shelves. Wow. And then moving on from, moving on from that, um, you've got these organizations here um, in, in Asia, I think <coughs> these are, yeah. Do you want, do you want to talk about um, how these yeah, came, I mean, the, you know, how the, these the, came the, about? Yeah, yeah. The Chiroptera Conservation and uh, an International and Information Network yeah. of South Asia. Uh, yeah, that's um, the brainchild of a lady called Sally Walker, who um, went to India when she was a young woman. Um, to study yoga and learn Sanskrit uh, and ended up um, doing a great deal to improve the circumstances in Indian zoos, um, which were in many cases far from satisfactory. And that, that led on to a wider involvement in conservation uh, including setting up this network of bat workers, which was really a sort of a, a directory of bat workers. Um, uh, so they would have a means of getting in touch with one another. Um, but then she became more proactive. And, uh, and this is where I first met Sally. Sally would um, go around the world outside India with a begging bowl. Um, and ask for funds to fund her work in India, and particularly running workshops. And I met her uh, in, at a, uh, an evening event in London Zoo. And as a result of that, she invited me um, to teach one of her workshops in South Asia. And through that, I taught workshops in a couple in India, maybe three in India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, uh, often accompanied by my wife, although I, uh, I paid my wife's fare. Um, and uh, 
it was fascinating to see Sally at work. She had a very good team of loyal helpers that did all the logistics, made sure the catering was in place. And um, uh, all these things start with ceremonies. So yeah. you, you have uh, ceremonies with dignitaries and there'll be some sort of religious, depending on the religion of the place, some sort of religious ceremony involved in that. Um, and she had these team of helpers. Uh, and I remember trying to get my mind around the fact that some of these young Indian women had two mobile phones, one in each hand. Okay. You know, and I suppose this was to plug into different networks. But they were always on the phone organizing stuff and, you know, doing the logistics. But it was it all worked. It was fantastic. Wow. And yeah. a lot of young Indians were inspired by these workshops. They often involved field work, out, you know, mist netting and stuff like that, identifying bats. Um, and that, uh, I mean, it was only in uh, just delving into some of these details uh, this morning that um, I checked my emails uh, to discover when I'd last had contact with Sally, because I've had lots of contact with her over the years, uh, in, um, even after I retired. Uh, I've done workshops for her. And the uh, last con email I wrote to in 2019, and then I discovered that was the year she died. And I, I, I didn't know that. Um, and I'm amazed that I hadn't seen you know, more widely published obituaries. But she was a, a remarkable lady. And she had no interest in material things. We visited, her base was in Coimbatore in Tamil Nadu, southern India. And um, she had an office there, but her personal room was the roof. And she slept okay. on the roof. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, she had a personal servant, so to speak, who looked after her, made sure she had meals and all that sort of thing. But I mean, she otherwise she was impoverished. She had she drew no salary or anything like that. Um, but uh, um, she she did an awful lot, and she part uh, of a spin-off. I mean, uh, was to with her colleagues was to establish um, journal of. The Journal of Threatened Taxa. And the Journal of Threatened Taxa is a very beautifully produced publication. Um, and it doesn't only publish on threatened taxa. Um, uh, but one of the nice things about it is you can publish any number of color photographs in it. Um, uh, and that's going back some years now. And it's a well-established journal, uh, freely available, you know, on the internet. And, and that's all part of Sally's legacy, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, absolutely. that, that sort of model of running workshops was picked up by CBP, the Southeast Asian Bat Conservation uh, Research Unit, okay. which is now, 
an NGO, but it started off less formally, um, teaching um, at workshops in all the Southeast Asian countries. And I guess because of my involvement with Sincinsa, uh, Tiga Kingston, who's the, who's always been the person behind CB Crew, because she did her, uh, Tiga did her PhD in, in Malaysia. So she's always done research in Southeast Asia. She um, invited me to participate in the workshops of CB Crew and through that, I have visited every country in Southeast Asia, with the exception of Laos, the Laos Democratic People's Republic. Um, because for some reason, a bureaucratic reason, they couldn't get their act together for a workshop. But I've been to Burma and uh, Thailand a couple of times. And um, it's really been, you know, fascinating. And through that has come, well, I mean, I'm not sure that directly through it, but I've had PhD students uh, in Thailand. I had a Thai PhD student in Aberdeen. I've had a, a PhD student in, in well, they actually worked in Thailand, but he was in Nepal and has come back to Nepal where he's working. Um, uh, and it's really, it's really been uh, fascinating. Um, and, and other British colleagues have been involved. Paul Bates has been involved in it. Um, so, the, the, you know, the, I'll, I'll give you one example. Um, we were in Mandalay, and a lot of the senior staff, the senior professors in Mandalay, were British educated. So they would come up to me and say, oh, do you know Professor so-and-so in Glasgow? He used to teach me, you know, this, this, this sort of thing. Ah. And we, we were taken into the library, um, which consisted of rows and rows and rows of master's theses and PhD theses in locked cases. And not one paper had emerged from those, not one paper. So all the work had been done, the students had got their qualifications, but that was it, end of story. So Tigger decided to, that we would hold a, a how to write papers workshop in Mandalay, which we did. And um, those of us from outside, we were given jobs to do um, we were um, given a, a student to uh, help produce a paper, you know, from their thesis. And uh, I was given a lady who had done a, a thesis on, on guano harvesting. Okay. Yeah. Her English was extremely poor, um, but we could, she could get some help with that. And... Uh, you know, the, the, we produced the first draft and that went backwards and forwards when I got back to Aberdeen. And uh, um, because of the situation in Burma or Myanmar, they could only use the internet at certain times and they had to go to a central place in the university to do it. Um, but they all had mobile phones. 
So the way it worked is I had another contact in Myanmar and I would email him and I would say to him, tell Tet Tet to check her emails. So he wouldn't phone Tet Tet. And she knew she had an email from me and she would go and with some help, I think she would answer it. And this very long, painful process, she eventually published a paper in wow. Journal of Threatened Taxa. In her own name, I wasn't involved. She'd okay. done the work um, and I just helped facilitate the publication. And, and, you know, when you do that for them, they are so undyingly grateful. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're so happy. And, and it's a big thing for them because so few of their fellow students have done that. And there were, there were other examples. I mean, other people, other people helping the CB crew did the same. So that, you know, it, it was, the whole CB crew thing was very rewarding. And that, that I guess that model of information transfer was picked up by Wabinet, that's the Western, A Western Asian Bat Research Network. Um, so, uh, Western Asia, depending on how you design it, Middle East sort of area, is, is a bit neglected. And um, this network was established by, um, by the Eco Health Alliance in New York with a grant from the US Department of Defense. And particularly the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And it sounds a bit sinister, but what it is, in fact, are the people that push money out for um, research on zoonotic diseases, and in this case, coronavirus research. Okay, right. So what has happened so far is that um, uh, and I'm on the scientific advisory board along with people like Paul Bates and Tigger Kingston. And we go out to countries identified in Western Asia like Georgia um, and Jordan. And with the EcoHealth staff, run workshops to train local people in how to sample bats uh, and then uh, the samples are delivered to two centers of excellence, one, one in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, and another in uh, Jordan, where molecular, uh, accredited molecular biologists examine them for coronaviruses. Okay. So, so, you know, this sort of thing is going on all over Europe. I mean, about conservation just involved in some collecting of feces for coronavirus survey. Peter Lina does a lot of it in Europe, he's done it in Ukraine. Um, and new coronaviruses are then identified. So far, none are zoonotic. Okay. So none have the capacity of infecting humans. Right, yes. Yeah. But um, I think it's important for that search to continue because somewhere, somewhere there is 
um, uh, COVID-2 virus that had the capacity of infecting humans, and we don't know where it came from. Yes. Um, I mean, it certainly didn't come from the bat, because that virus has not been identified in any bat. Um, whether it came from some other wildlife, people are still hunting. Yes, yeah. And this is something that, before we started recording today, um, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time at the moment uh, looking at research that other people have been doing, you know, since the pandemic yes, and stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. What, that, what, what, what's, your, what's your feelings on Well, on well that, that, that's right. I mean, uh, one of the, if you like, least satisfying things I've done in retirement is read um, these papers, and I try and keep my eye on them, um, uh, where people um, people are talking about zoonotic diseases, uh, recent research on zoonotic diseases, and the threat of bats, and come out with completely false statements. And most recent one, which, which appeared in a journal called environmental chemistry letters okay. so environmental chemistry letters wouldn't be my first port of call for papers on bats and viruses okay. but it came to our attention and it starts off with saying uh, uh, bats are a source of covid 2 I mean, completely egregious statement completely and utterly false and it got through referee i mean first of all the author should have known better um it got through referees it got through the editor of the journal the interesting thing is that one of the associate editors of the journal is an author on this paper which no conflict of interest there then um so um and, and you know i spend quite a lot of my time uh ferreting out this stuff and trying to get it corrected so some journals are completely resistant. I mean, you point out how false it is, and they just brush it off uh, and, yeah. and, and give the authors an opportunity to correct it. And in one case, they've done that by simply uh, pirating, simply plagiarizing the statements in our letter of complaint to the editor. They just lift that and put it into their paper here, there, anywhere, and just yeah. carry on. Uh, and, yeah. and then, then it's, it's published it in the journal. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, so that part of my life at the moment, I mean, I am a complainer. Yeah. Um, and and uh, compared with what I've done before in my life, it's not a very satisfactory occupation. But, but very, very important uh, because... Yeah, if, if you succeed, yeah. and, and occasionally yeah. we do. I mean, I have to say that. Nature published a, a piece by us saying, uh, and it was several of us, uh, Rock Fenton and Merlin Tuttle, yeah. uh, d d don't misrepresent. This was going back a bit to SARS, not KG2. Yeah. SARS. Don't, mi mi don't mi misrepresent uh, the threat of bats and SARS. And Nature published it um, because it was one of their correspondents had come out with this stuff. Um, saying bats were the smoking gun of SARS. Yeah. And uh, we said, no, they're not. 
<laughs> we, we can't say that. Um, so, you know, um, we'll bash on and see what we achieve. Yeah, and uh, obviously the years to come are, uh, there's still, as you say, a lot more questions than there are answers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but let's let's talk briefly about bats without borders. I know that's uh, something that that you have an involvement with. I don't know. Yes, yes. Well, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm not involved in a in in the governance sense. Um, Rachel Cooper Bahannon asked me to get involved as an ambassador um, because she knew of my interest in Africa and the fact that I was at that meeting. Um, trying to set up a back network in Africa that was, uh, was convened by the back, back, by back Conservation International. Um, and uh, we talk often um, on the telephone about you know, what's going on, uh, problems, how they might be solved. Uh, more recently about a specific threat to a relatively small national park in Zambia called Kisanka National Park okay. um, that has the largest seasonal migration of bats uh, in Africa. Yeah. And many millions of straw-colored fruit bats arrive there in November, December, stay until the new year uh, because there's a, uh, they come, uh, there's been some uh, radio tracking studies and they travelled uh, two, three thousand miles from further uh, northeast in Africa, okay. um, and uh, the park isn't a very nice park. I've stayed there many times. It's not on the main tourist circuit like Luangwa. Everybody, if you want to go to Zambia, you go to Luangwa, which is provides you with all the all the the animals you want to see. Yeah. Um, so Kisank is a bit of a niche visit, uh, but very important so far as bats are concerned. And a tan, uh, 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 an agricultural development company is in the process of destroying the sort of environment in the area immediately adjacent to the park which is called the game management area, uh, which a lot of these parks have. They have an area adjacent, which is not as, not as um, well protected as the park, but where the game are free to move in and out of the park. So it's very important for the fauna of the park to have this area. And this company is destroying vegetation with big diggers and stuff. Uh, and drilling boreholes and uh, converting it into agriculture. Uh, I think a Tanzanian company, uh, what they're doing is completely illegal. They've been served with stop orders, um, uh, which they completely ignore. Um, and so uh, the rest of the world may, now knows quite a bit about this and is complaining about it. Um, there's a new president in Zambia who sounds as if he's a better deal than the previous administration, less corrupt. So he is being approached 
um, various international agencies like um, AUCN are being involved. Whoever we think can bend the ear of, of the president. But you know what you can be sure of is you know money is changing hands to facilitate this um, because you know bribery and corruption is endemic. And uh, so I, I talked at length with uh, Rachel and the people in the park about whether um, uh, there's anything more we can do from here. And it's difficult. I mean, I'm not hopeful. <laughs> the park has always been under threat um, from one developer or another. Yeah. Uh, Last time, the last threat was Chinese wanted to buy up a lot of the land of the ancient. This time, I think it's the Tanzanians who are, who are causing the problem. But uh, it, uh, you, know, you know, difficult for us to get our mind around here. But it, you've got a sovereign country like Zambia, and the Tanzanians move in without any buy or leave and start developing for agriculture. Yeah. Just, it's difficult to understand, you know. Yeah, how, 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 how can that happen? You know, exactly. that, that I mean, you know, yeah. um, Well, I suppose, you know, Russia moves in and takes over Crimea, takes over bits of Ukraine. We get similar things in, in uh, Europe, but yeah. we're worried about the bats. Okay, well, f fingers, fingers crossed that sure, uh, sure. that changes sure. direction. Uh, soon, very soon. Yeah. So, uh, as we as we said earlier, um, you retired from Aberdeen University in two thousand and nine, and you moved to Cornwall, um, as as you said. And let's let's finish off the the interview by not talking about bats, but talking about you know what what do you do or what have you done in the past? What do you do today? Uh, when you're not doing bat-related Well, it, it, it's, yeah. it's more what I've done in the past. Okay. Because uh, in uh, Scotland, we started off with a, a ruin and one acre. Yeah. And we, ended up, we ended up with a hab habitable dwelling and 20 acres of grass over a long period. Yeah. So, so that we could, um, we had our own flock of sheep. Um, uh, I applied and got uh, an EU quota in the days of EU quotas for 13 ewes, yeah. which means that uh, if all those ewes produce twins, um, we could end up maybe with 40 head uh, yeah. on, the, on the premises and we had a ram and uh, the highlight of the year was taking the uh, lambs off the market. Um, and uh, we also had space enough for a horse each, my wife and I, and my wife introduced me to riding. Okay. Um, and we had a horse each, um, and we used to go riding every weekend. And uh, uh, later, when we could afford it, when the children had left home, we used to go on riding holidays, and that's what this photograph is. Okay. This, this is taken in um, Bulgaria. Okay, and yeah. So that's one of the horses on the trek across Bulgaria. And we just stopped for a break. And uh, that was uh, very enjoyable. That was the most enjoyable hobby uh, to have. Uh, and, and we had, uh, we lived 
we bought our house from and lived on a large estate, Melbourne estate with an absentee landlord. Uh, and uh, we didn't have any objections to us riding across his fields and through his woodland. Um, and so we had nice rides like that every weekend. And I, I'm we just... Yeah, I'm just imagining, you know, because you, you, we've been talking about, you've been describing uh, all of these things that you were doing as part of your uh, professional life. And along with that, you're, you're managing a croft with sheep and lambing, and it must have been pretty hectic for you at certain times. Well I mean, yes, I mean, I, that's been put to me before, but the craft really didn't take much work. Okay. Um, a bit of organisational stuff. Um, I mean, uh, and if you keep sheep, there are some unpleasant things to do, like paring their toenails um, on a wet Sunday afternoon. Um, but otherwise, it was very satisfying. I mean, um, my wife, my wife went to an agricultural training board course and learned lambing, and she passed it on to me, and um, I mean, it's very satisfying. And you see it very regularly on TV programs, all these farming programs, particularly Country Fire and that sort of thing, of uh, people lambing. And when yeah. you have a certain, if you help a you in difficulty. Uh, and get the lamb out live, um, as was generally the case, that's very satisfying. Yeah, It's yeah. equally depressing if you fail and the lamb is born dead. But that happened very seldom. Um, so it, it, I mean, and, you know, you find out um, which locals you can rely on. I mean, we had a very good neighbour. If I phoned him up and said, I need more round bales of hay, uh, he'd be around very quickly with them. Okay. And, th and that, that, that was one of the reasons why we eventually gave up, because the, uh, the rolling around bale of hay uh, into a field uh, became quite a challenge. Yes. Quite a challenge. Hard work. Um, but, uh, and it, we, you know, we, and we didn't do it to make money because there was um, little money to be made, although I always got a good price for my sheep for my lambs, it was because, you know, I looked after them and put a lot of feed into them. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, <laughs> interesting to go on a Saturday and collect um, molasses. So, so when, when the ewes are, are lambing and, and lactating, uh, a very good food is um, real black, oily molasses uh, that they really love. And it's a very good nutrient for them. And so you had to go to, to some molasses depository and fill up barrels of molasses and be careful not to spill any anywhere. And they were great days, uh, as, was, as was taking them to the mart, um, loading a borrowed trailer, um, making sure that none of them escaped, because if they escaped, you'd never get them back. Okay. And get them yeah. into the trailer taking them off to Mark, getting them up into the Mark. And the way it worked in Aberdeen and Northern Marks was you went to stand by the auctioneer. And so you stood up there 
the auctioneer had his microphone on. Yeah. He, start, he started bidding. Yeah. And they went up like a pound at a time. Okay. And um, yeah, well, first of all, you would have to say what they were. So they were lambs that had been docked. So their tails had been docked, okay. dressed, i.e., if they were males, they'd been castrated yes. and inoculated. So you inoculated them against uh, seven nasties. So they were dressed, dressed, docked, and inoculated. So you start the bidding up. And he'd get up maybe, I don't know, in those days, maybe 20 pounds. Okay. He'd switch his microphone off and he'd say, he turned to me and he said, shall I sell him? I said, no. And yeah. so he turned his microphone on and he'd say to the assembled farmers, he said, the boys needing more money. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so the bidding would start again, but it would only go up in 50p's. Okay. So you might get a bit higher up, but you, you knew you'd almost reach your asymptote. Okay. Uh, I remember on one occasion, uh, when I first started, I got a neighbour to help me in his float to take the lambs to the mark. And I saw him standing in front of, in, in the ring, standing at the edge of the ring. And he was bidding. And, and he, he was a cattle farmer. He never had sheep on his premises. Okay. Uh, and he was a cattle farmer. And I said to him afterwards, Jimmy, I saw you bidding. What would have happened if you got caught with them? Yeah. And he said, oh, I knew they were well looked after. He right. said, I'd have, I'd have sold them the next week. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they were fun days. They were fun yeah. days. And they got us through the winter. Yeah. And did you ever have any... I mean, I'm, I'm from the Northeast, as you know. Uh, did you, very, you must have had a bit of a struggle to begin with getting your head around the Doric, yeah? Uh, well, uh, um, yes. What, what, I mean, not, not in Aberdeen, because we lived in Aberdeen City for the first three years. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I remember my wife, who gave birth to twins in Aberdeen Maternity Hospital. Yeah. Uh, and when she was pushed back to the ward, the other ladies in the ward said, what did you get? Did you get a loon or a coin? Right, okay. <laughs> she had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> did, you get a, did you get a boy or a girl? I had a cattle. Um, yeah. uh, and um, um, but when we moved out to the countryside, yeah. Um, three years later, I mean that was a, that was probably quite challenging. Depend on who you were talking to. Yeah, because that's uh, that's like going that's like going. It is like going to a different country. <laughs> it, it, it is, and and, and the, act, the even the dialect was very regional. Yeah. So apparently, you know, people from Old Meldon um, or from McGeary who met other people from Old Melbourne or the Geary, you know, okay. in a far distant part of the world, would say, are you from the Geary? You know, yeah. they just pick up those things. I mean, a word like picked, my okay. neighbours wouldn't say picked. Yeah. They would say, he picked it up. Yeah. They would, they would sound the ED at the yeah. end of the word, stuff like that. But um, I mean, you know, there were greetings that you quickly picked up because everybody yes. used, uh, like, fit like, uh, what's yeah. it like, how yeah. are you, yeah. um, nay bad, 
not bad. Yeah. And, and then I think it was more of a caricature thing. The next thing they were meant to say is, first your neeps. Right, how, okay. are you, how are your turnips? Yes. Uh-huh. Because if your turnips aren't good, you're in for a bad time. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's nothing for your animals to eat. Of course, yeah. Well, I mean, I, no, I, I've, I've, I've brought up in that part of the world um, but yeah, uh, I was uh, I was I was brought up in the city, so uh, okay. originally Maastricht, and then Maastricht, yeah, 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 and then Summerhill. I went to Hazelhead Academy. Oh, yes. yeah. Academy, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, it was Hazelhead Academy I went to, but I stayed in Summerhill. Yeah. Uh, but, but even even for me, there would be times when I would meet somebody either in Aberdeen or around outskirts, and they would say something. And I would just look at them blankly, like, you know, I, I just don't know what that means. And I'd love yeah. to all my life, you know. So I know I, I can I can relate, I can totally relate to that. And and after as we said, you moved down to Cornwall and sailing, I think, was a big passion. And going down to where you are now. I think that gives you the opportunity to do yes. more sailing. Well, I, or, yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. I started actually uh, on uh, the River Deben in Suffolk, okay. where my father-in-law had a boat, a Drascombe Dabber, um, three sails, uh, 18 feet long, open boat, okay. and we would sail down the river and then turn around and come back again. You know, it was totally enjoyable. And then uh, when he died, I inherited his boat, I had it in Scotland. I, play, I tried sailing it in Peterhead breakwater, and you get a bit bored when you sailed around that a few times. And I remember taking it out through the open of the breakwater into the North Sea, yeah. thinking, I don't like this. It's, yeah. it's, too, it's too daunting. And I turned around and came back again. Yeah. But it was much nicer sailing in Cornwall um, because we, we had a mooring. Um, uh, off the Helford River and um, you could go out into the, the sea and if you saw the weather beginning to look a bit lumpy uh, or the clouds coming in yeah. you could quickly get back to safe safety okay. and I had very many relaxing times um, uh, down there um, I, I mean in retrospect I thought that was going to occupy a larger part of my retirement than it did okay. and to a certain extent that's been a wee bit disappointing i mean we couldn't bring our horses down because we had no ground down here we had to sell them um but uh, i thought sailing was going to be the main thing um and uh, it's it's people don't realize you know you you've got to get you know the tide and the weather the winds right uh, everything's got to be for you before you can get out there and get on with it. Yeah. When you do, it's wonderful to sit there on the boat and see porpoises uh, jumping around you. Um, it's very, very relaxing. And I guess it's relaxing because you've got to concentrate. Yeah. You, you know, you've got to keep your eye on the sails and when, what the wind's doing all the time. Um, and, and that's really very relaxing. And yeah. I wish I'd been able to do more of it, but then, you know, I had, uh, I had a problem, a knee problem, arthritis, and needed a new knee, and that didn't really work. And so my balance 
isn't 100%. And I didn't feel safe because I sailed this boat on my own uh, um, and I really shouldn't have done. So I, I, I gave it up. Okay. Um, uh, so I was sorry about that. But uh, I, it's, uh, it's wonderfully relaxing and very enjoyable while it lasted. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something I've read a lot about over the years um, because I've been fascinated behind uh, some of the personalities that do the, yeah. the solo round-the-world trips yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and their mental resilience yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did try it once. Uh, I spent two weeks learning to sail in the, uh, off the coast of uh, some Greek islands. Um, oh, very nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it was supposed to be very nice, but uh, we got right at the very end of the season, and and there's probably not lumpy uh, from your descriptions, but uh, it was a massive yacht that uh, we were learning in, and you basically learn how to do it the first week, and then the second week they give you the yacht, and it's just you and your partner, and you're on this. Uh, massive yacht on your own sailing between islands and yeah there were a couple of times where I've got to say you know we didn't really know what we were doing and mm. it was mm. a bit uncomfortable uh, mentally yes, yes. <laughs> yes I can imagine yeah but uh, but it gave me an insight as to how difficult it was and how how daunting it must be for the likes of your uh, Ellen MacArthur's for example yes, to, yes, yes. to do the stuff that she's done exactly, uh, exactly. just amazing stuff yeah, amazing yeah, stuff. yeah. 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 okay well I think we're going to take things to a close there Paul uh, right. is there anything you want is there anything you want to say uh, is no, there anything except, have, yeah. except thank you very much it's been very enjoyable yeah uh, I mean much more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be well, you know, yeah, that, that's... At the outset, well, you think it might be a bit daunting, but it's gone very well. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. and I think this is what most people find, um, because part of what we're trying to do here is let people in, in the sector, you know, the ecology sector, the bat world, um, learn more about the names and the personalities and the characters and uh, you know the people such as yourself that you know they'll have read so much about but they don't really they've maybe never heard speak or they don't really know that much about the person and this is what we're trying to do in part and and I've got to say for myself uh, I mean today chatting with yourself has just been fascinating, inspiring, interesting. Uh, I've learned a whole load of stuff about people that I didn't know about, including, of course, yourself. And that's just a massive thank you from me to you for taking the time to actually do this. And I'm, and I'm, glad, I'm really pleased that, that you feel as if it's been a good thing to do. So, I have, and thank you very much indeed for inviting me hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview, which is an edited, audio-only version of the original video session. The full version, including video, is available via Betability Club, our online training platform. To find out more about Club, go to betability.co.uk. Till next time.
Thank you.